Hey, welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, administering your daily dose of death. Today's story features one of the happiest places on Earth, California's Disneyland. I live in Orlando, Florida, and I used to work at Disney World, which is Disneyland's sister park. Being a Florida native meant that Disney was a big part of my life growing up. It really wasn't until I got older that I learned about the darkness behind the mouse. Today I'm going to tell you two stories about one ride, the Matterhorn. First, I'll give you a brief history on Mr. Walt Disney. We'll follow that up with some information on the ride itself before diving into the two accidents that occurred there. Then we'll finish up the episode discussing the bane of Disney's shining reputation, a movie called Escape from Tomorrow. Though today's story isn't about homicides, two deaths did occur. Before we get into today's story, I want to take this time to bring attention to another missing Indigenous woman's case. I'll be sure to include a link with her picture as well as the sources for this episode in the show notes. Germaine Liz Morajo, also known by the name Germaine Charlo, was last seen in the early morning hours of June 16, 2018 in Missoula, Montana. Detective Guy Baker with the Missoula Police Department told Dateline in 2018 that the 23-year-old had been seen with an acquaintance she knew very well, who dropped her off in the vicinity of Orange and South 5th Street between midnight and 1 a.m. in the general area where she lived. The detective declined to name the acquaintance, who among others has been questioned, to protect the integrity of the investigation. Quote, there's a couple different investigative aspects we're looking at, Detective Baker told Dateline at the time. Quote, I believe she is the victim of a criminal act. I don't know if it's homicide, sex trafficking, or kidnapping, but aspects of the investigation have led us to believe those are the options. Jermaine is Native American and described as being 5'9 and weighing about 130 pounds. She was last seen wearing blue jeans, a white t-shirt with brown Under Armour sweatshirt, cowboy boots, and a baseball cap with three trees on it. If you have any information on Jermaine's whereabouts, call the Missoula Police Department at 406-552-6300. When we return from the break, we'll get into today's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. With the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Disneyland, Walt Disney's metropolis of nostalgia, fantasy, and futurism, opened on July 17, 1955. 
The $17 million theme park was built on 160 acres of former orange groves in Anaheim, California, and soon brought in staggering profits. Today, Disneyland hosts more than 18 million visitors a year, who spend close to $3 billion. Walt Disney, born in Chicago in 1901, worked as a commercial artist before setting up a small studio in Los Angeles to produce animated cartoons. In 1928, his short film Steamboat Willie, starring the character Mickey Mouse, was a national sensation. It was the first animated film to use sound, and Disney provided the voice for Mickey. From there on, Disney cartoons were in heavy demand, but the company struggled financially because of Disney's insistence on ever-improving artistic and technical quality. His first feature-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, from 1938, took three years to complete and was a great commercial success. Once there was a princess. Was the princess... You? And she fell in love. Was it hard to do? <laughs> it was very easy. Snow White was followed by other feature-length classics for children, such as Pinocchio in 1940, Dumbo in 1941, and Bambi in 1942. Fantasia, from 1940, which coordinated animated segments with famous classical music pieces, was an artistic and technical achievement. In Song of the South from 1946, Disney combined live actors with animated figures, and beginning with Treasure Island in 1950, the company added live action movies to its repertoire. Disney was also one of the first movie studios to produce films directly for television, and its Zorro and Davy Crockett series were very popular with children. In the early 1950s, Walt Disney began designing a huge amusement park to be built near Los Angeles. He intended Disneyland to have educational as well as amusement value and to entertain adults and their children. Land was bought in the farming community of Anaheim, about 25 miles southeast of Los Angeles, and construction began in 1954. In the summer of 1955, special invitations were sent out for the opening of Disneyland on July 17th. Unfortunately, the pass was counterfeited, and thousands of uninvited people were admitted into Disneyland on opening day. The park was not ready for the public. Food and drink ran out, a women's high heel shoe got stuck in the wet asphalt of Main Street, USA, and the Mark Twain steamboat nearly capsized from too many passengers. Disneyland soon recovered, however, and attractions such as the castle, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Snow White's Adventures, Space Station X-1, Jungle Cruise, and Stagecoach drew countless children and their parents. Special events and the continual building of new state-of-the-art attractions encouraged them to visit again. In 1965, work began on an even bigger Disney theme park and resort near Orlando, Florida. Walt Disney died in 1966, and Walt Disney World was open in his honor on October 1, 1971. Epcot Center, Disney MGM Studios, and Animal Kingdom were later added to Walt Disney World, and along with Universal Studios, they remained Florida's premier tourist attractions. In 1983, Disneyland Tokyo opened in Japan, and in 1992, Disneyland Paris, or Euro Disney, opened to a mixed reaction in Marne-la-Ville. 
Disneyland in Hong Kong opened its doors in September of 2005. There's an undeniable fascination with theme park accidents. There are books, countless blogs, and even entire YouTube channels dedicated to them. And it's no wonder. There's something about the juxtaposition of a fun day at the park and an unexpected tragedy that sticks in our minds. If you Google Disneyland accidents, you get over 800,000 hits on Google. Among the most frequently cited are two deaths on the Matterhorn, one of the icons of the park. The first death occurred in May 1964, five years after the Matterhorn opened. It was among the park's original thrill rides, a quick and jerky trip around a track inside a snow-capped mountain. To keep them safely inside, riders wore lap belts in their bobsleds. It's worth mentioning here that one of the reasons people are so obsessed with Disneyland accidents is because they're exceedingly rare. There are only a handful of fatal incidents in the 66-year history of the park, so each one has gained outsized infamy as a result. Matterhorn bobsleds, or just the Matterhorn, is an attraction composed of two intertwining steel roller coasters, which opened on June 14, 1959, at Disneyland in Anaheim. It's modeled after the Matterhorn, a mountain in the Swiss Alps. It's the first tubular steel, continuous track roller coaster ever constructed, and thus an American coaster enthusiast's coaster landmark. Located on the border between Tomorrowland and Fantasyland, it employs a forced perspective to seem more impressively large. Throughout the day, climbers dressed in Swiss mountain climbing garb may be seen scaling the peak, often accompanied by Disney characters such as Mickey Mouse and Goofy. During the construction of the park, dirt from the excavation of Sleeping Beauty's castle's moat was piled in an area between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. When the park opened, the area, dubbed Holiday Hill, was improved with benches and pathways to encourage its use as a picnic area. After the opening of the Skyway in 1956, Walt Disney conceived the idea of a toboggan ride on the mountain with real snow, but the logistics caused vehement objections by Disneyland construction chief Joe Fowler. In this period, the hill began to be known as Snow Hill. By now, instead of picnicking, the hill had come to be used primarily as nighttime lover's lane, much to Disney's dismay. New, wild, mouse-style roller coasters got the attention of Disneyland executives, who began to consider applying this emerging technology to the creation of a toboggan-themed coaster ride on an artificial mountain at the site. The structure was also intended to act as a decorative overlay to camouflage the central pylon of the Skyway. Use of the Matterhorn both in style and name grew from Disney's extended vacation in Switzerland while filming Third Man on the Mountain. He was impressed by the beauty of the real Matterhorn and merged the toboggan ride concept with the thoughts of a bobsled coaster ride that would run around and through the structure. The peak was first shown in a conceptual drawing that was once on display at the Disney Gallery. Disney sends a postcard with the mountain on it. The view to the northwest shows a corner of the now-defunct Junior Autopia, which would be replaced by both the Matterhorn and the submarine voyage the following year. One of the three major new Tomorrowland attractions to open that year, the Matterhorn debuted on June 14, 1959. Built by coaster builder Aero Development and WED Imagineering, it was the first tubular steel roller coaster in the world. It consisted of a wood and steel infrastructure surrounded by man-made rock. 
trees could be seen on its sides. By making the trees at higher altitudes smaller, the Imagineers used forced perspective to augment the mountain's height. Waterfalls cascaded down its sides and frequently sprayed riders. Inside was a large open space through which the bobsleds traveled. The peak had numerous holes in its exterior through which the bobsleds exited and re-entered, though the space within was not elaborately themed, with the infrastructure being only minimally disguised as rock. The Skyway passed through the center of the mountain via a pair of holes on the Fantasyland and Tomorrowland sides. Skyway riders could see down into the Matterhorn's interior as they glided through. In the early 1970s, the Matterhorn was officially made a part of Fantasyland, but this was merely a prelude to far more significant changes. In 1978, the Matterhorn received a major refurbishment. The Imagineer's biggest task was to break up the hollow interior space into a number of small, icy caves and tunnels with far more convincing theming. Some holes in the mountain skin were filled in as well, including the two large openings at the top of the first lift hill that had allowed guests to briefly glimpse the entire southern part of the park. Another major addition was the abominable snowman, a yeti named Harold. He exists as three similar audio-animatronic figures that roar at the bobsledders. The first is visible from both tracks, while the other two are visible only from their respective tracks. Each track also features a pair of red eyes that glow in the dark shortly after the lift hill while Harold's roar is heard. These roars can be heard from ground level as well, even over the recorded howling of the alpine wind. The bobsleds themselves were also changed from the original flat, multicolored two-seaters to the rounder, wide cars decorated with orange and red stripes. The Skyway continued to travel through the mountain for the next 16 years, but its passageway was now enclosed in similarly themed ice caves. Following its closure in 1994, the cavernous holes through which the Skyway buckets had traveled were partially filled in. The holes in the Tomorrowland face remained mostly intact, and a grotto filled with glimmering crystals was installed nearby. An abandoned crate labeled Wells Expedition was also added as a tribute to Frank Wells, who had died earlier that year. The bluish glow of the crystals is easily seen from the ground at night. It's also worth noting that the Matterhorn's external appearance has changed over time. The Matterhorn is painted a warmer gray than it once was, and the snow on its sides has become patchier, though the current paint job more closely replicates the sparse snow on the real Matterhorn's upper faces. With the exception of the aforementioned filling of certain holes, the actual external structure of the mountain remains largely unchanged from its original construction. In 2012, the Matterhorn underwent another massive renovation. This included repainting and re-sculpting parts of the mountain face to achieve a greater sense of realism, with the new snow painted in such a manner to feel more naturally spread onto the mountain, with beads of glass mixed in to give it a shimmering effect. This would also be the first time the Matterhorn was completely covered in scaffolding since its initial construction. Additionally, the Matterhorn would receive a new set of bobsleds and a renovated load area. In 2015, the Matterhorn underwent yet another major refurbishment. This renovation included the old Yeti animatronics being replaced with ones whose range of motion is less limited. Additionally, the gaps next to the ride vehicles on the lift were filled in with a thin layer of ice. Harold now peers through that as he climbs the mountain to attack the guests. 
The crystal scene was replaced with a wrecked camp of some unlucky hikers. Large footprints lead to their equipment, which include two of the original bobsleds, as well as Bucket 59, or replica, from the Skyway. On April 30th, 2021, Disneyland Resort reopened after being temporarily closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, this attraction remained closed. On July 2nd, 2021, the attraction reopened after being refurbished. The ride consists of two separate tracks that run roughly parallel to each other for much of the ride, intertwining and eventually deviating from each other at the loading areas. They are the Fantasyland Track and Tomorrowland Track, named for the side of the mountain their associated loading line begins in. The vehicles hold up to four passengers each, seated single file. After the 1978 upgrade, the individual vehicles were joined into pairs, increasing the capacity to eight riders. The safety restraints consist of a simple airline-style seatbelt. There are hand grips inside the cars, as well as a handrail outside the shell of the vehicle. The Matterhorn employs only one lift hill. Bobsleds ascend parallel to each other at the start of the ride, climbing past walls featuring snow-like special effects. The top of this lift hill constitutes the highest point of the ride itself, though the mountain continues upward for another couple of stories. The rest of the ride is an unpowered coast through the Matterhorn's many caverns and passageways. The splashdown pools at the end of each track serve dual purposes. They not only cool off the braking fins mounted on the underside of the bobsleds, but the impact into the water itself acts as a braking mechanism. Because of their constant exposure to water, the fiberglass bodies are regularly waxed. For many years, a basketball half-court existed inside the structure above the coaster, near the top of the mountain, where the mountain climbers could play between climbs. As internal access to the mountain was locked for safety reasons, the court was accessible only to the climbers. The court was relocated slightly during the installation of the Tinkerbell flight equipment prior to the 50th anniversary celebration. The hoop and playing area remain intact. It was approaching midnight when 15-year-old Mark Maples of Long Beach got in line at the Matterhorn with two teenage classmates. Maples was savoring freedom. His parents had just released him from a weeks-long grounding so he could attend the after-hours Elks Club event with his brothers. There was an indescribable feeling of magic that pervaded the atmosphere. The scent of popcorn, candied nuts, and ice cream lingered in the air, a sweet medley that provided feelings of comfort and nostalgia. Though he wasn't very excited about seeing Sleeping Beauty's castle, Mark buzzed with excitement as he made his way to the Matterhorn. The icy peak slowly grew in the horizon as he approached. The sounds of the bobsled traversing the metal tracks and excited screams echoed out the mountain. Mark was born on the 6th of April in 1949 in Los Angeles, California. At the time of his trip to Disneyland, he was a student at Stanford Junior High School. He had a ready smile and many friends at school, as well as a gaping susceptibility to Walt Disney's dream. Waiting to get on the bobsled ride, Mark, along with his friends Gary Payne and Douglas Gibbs, crowded in ahead of others in the line, shouting and pushing past two girls to get into the car the girls otherwise would have had. The details of what happened next are murky. Douglas sat in front, with Mark just behind, legs stretched on either side of him. Both were secured with separate seatbelts, and Gary was in a rear seat alone. It was dark, so the other boys couldn't clearly see what transpired 
but there is the distinct sound of three separate clicks as they fasten their seatbelts. As the other passengers got seated, the familiar Disneyland safety spiel came over the loudspeakers. Welcome to a most exciting adventure, a breathtaking bobsled ride down the icy slopes of the majestic Matterhorn. To assist you in boarding your bobsled, we ask that you observe the seating diagram directly overhead. For your own safety, please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened at all times. And please hold on to hats and glasses. Thank you. The ride was set in motion into a dark tunnel in the mountain. It steadily made its ascent in the dark of the hill, the clicking of the tracks ringing in Mark's ears. As the tunnel opened back up to the outside, the bobsled began its descent down the mountain. Douglas unbuckled his seatbelt, which also secured Mark's feet. Mark drew up his legs until they jammed against Douglas's back. He tried shifting positions to anchor himself in the bobsled better and let out a scream not of excitement, but of terror. They rode in this position until Douglas heard a hard thump from nearby and above. He felt movement behind him, saw a flash of Mark's sweater, and when he turned around, Mark was gone. Douglas and Gary exited the ride, excited from the adrenaline of riding a coaster, but worried about Mark. He was just on the ride with them. Where did he go? They located a cast member nearby, easily identified by their distinct name tag, and informed them of Mark's disappearance. It wasn't unusual for things to get lost on rides. Hat, glasses, maybe a scarf. But a whole teenager? It required stopping the ride and searching the tracks. It was a tricky mountain to navigate, but even trickier to find Mark. He was eventually found on a ledge about a third of the way down the ride. Disneyland officials reported that Mark, quote, apparently struck his head on the side of the concrete mountain and fell vertically about one foot, landing beside the tracks of the sled. They estimated the bobsled was going about 20 miles per hour at the time of the accident. Mark Maple's father told the press the next day that ride operators didn't believe the boys when they said their companion had fallen out. Quote, It was not until two girls who were in the car behind them verified the story before the ride was shut down, the press telegram reported. When paramedics arrived, Mark was unconscious. He was rushed to the hospital with severe head trauma and put on a ventilator. The teenager died four days later, having never regained consciousness. An investigation by Anaheim Police and the Orange County Coroner's Office was already underway. Coroner's deputies inspected the ride and took slow motion trips on the tracks to try to recreate what happened. Chief Deputy Coroner Eugene Miller said the department was getting calls that the accident resulted from a hazing, and one Associated Press headline heartlessly called Maples, quote, a daredevil youth. Ultimately, the confusion of the night and the age of the witnesses meant that there was no definitive answer to how Maples fell from his bobsled. Both the boys and the evidence refuted the hazing allegation, and a week after the fall, the Anaheim police chief ruled Maples' death was purely accidental. Mark Maples left behind his parents, Jack and LaBella, and brothers Christopher, age 17, and Anthony, age 13. His death was the first fatality recorded in the park. Exactly 20 years later, the Matterhorn saw its second accidental death. 
A few days into the new year, 1984, 48-year-old Dolly Regina Young of Fremont was visiting the park with five friends from Arizona. Young was a former Avon lady, friendly and particularly well-liked by all the kids in her neighborhood. Around 3.30 p.m., Young and her friends loaded into a bobsled at the base of the Matterhorn. Young sat alone in the very back. At that time, the Skyway gondola still went through the attraction, ferrying guests through a hole in the mountain. A family of three from Idaho, a father and two teen daughters, were passing into the Matterhorn just as Young's bobsled was halfway back down the mountain. According to police reports, 19-year-old Helen Pishner screamed first. Oh my god, someone fell out of that car, her father Don recalled her saying. Helen told police she remembered seeing a female bouncing on her back on the tracks, moments after presumably falling from her sled. For a moment, Helen said it looked like Young was trying to get up. 33 seconds after Young fell from her bobsled, the next ride vehicle came around the corner. Don Pishner yelled for his daughters to look away. A family from British Columbia was in the oncoming bobsled. For a moment, they thought the body lying between the two parallel tracks was possibly a prop. As they got closer, though, the horrifying reality set in. The bobsled struck Young on the head and torso, killing her instantly and trapping the bobsled on top of her. The ride system automatically shut off that portion of the ride, sensing a bobsled was stuck. That, combined with screaming, alerted a worker that something was horribly wrong. He raced up the mountain and found the nightmarish scene. On his sprint back down for help, he encountered two more cast members. He told them not to look. Police and paramedics were soon on the scene, where Young was declared dead. An investigation was launched by Anaheim detectives. They quickly ruled out foul play and suicide, and zeroed in on the seatbelt. When police arrived on the scene, they noted Young's seatbelt was open and lying on her empty seat. Quote, means it could have been either way, Detective Carl Martin told the LA Times. If she stood up, her belt could have fallen on the seat or if she could have been sitting on it. Disneyland officials said there is no way Young could have left the start of the ride with her belt undone. It was standard protocol for cast members to check guests twice to make sure they were fastened in. After interviewing witnesses, Anaheim detective David Tuttle ruled Young's death an accident. Quote, it could be that it'll never be determined what actually happened, Tuttle told the media. One version of the story goes that Dolly was a mother who went on the ride with her children. She was worried about them, so she undid her seatbelt and turned to look at them. The sled went into a sharp decline, and she was thrown from the train and run over by the next bobsled. Interestingly, no organization in the state had the authority to regulate theme park rides. Two years before, Congress had stripped the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission of its ability to inspect rides at stationary parks like Disneyland or the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Only OSHA could conduct inspections, but only within the context of employee, not guest, safety. So like most amusement parks in the country, Disneyland was allowed to regulate itself. The day after the fatal accident, the Matterhorn was running again as usual. Disneyland officials said the ride had been checked for malfunctions and, with none found, was safe to operate. The bobsled that Young fell out of, number 10, was put back into service too, though the one that struck her was sidelined for more testing. 
In February 1984, a month after the accident, Young's husband filed a $5 million wrongful death lawsuit against Disney. He hired a well-known Bay Area lawyer, James Bocardo, to represent the family. Bocardo came out swinging, blaming two young men who worked at the attraction for being impressed with two beautiful girls who were part of the group and failing to properly check Young's belt, allegation Disneyland officials strenuously denied. Quote, my wife is not a frivolous or daring person, Young's husband told the Associated Press. She was not some young kid that would have stood up on the ride. The Los Angeles Times reported Disneyland defended about 50 negligence cases each year and had high success negotiating settlements in the vast majority of them. And indeed, four years later, just as the Young case was entering jury selection, both parties reached a settlement. All parties were barred from discussing the terms of the deal, but a Disneyland spokesperson said the lawsuit was settled to the satisfaction of the Walt Disney Company. After Young's death, the seatbelts on the Matterhorn were changed. Before 1985, belts were slipped through a buckle, which closed down on top of it with a friction fastener. These were replaced with the kind you use in cars, a lap belt that buckles into a socket. Disneyland officials told the Times this change had nothing to do with the accident. Their old supplier had gone out of business and they'd switch providers. These are the type of seatbelts still used on the ride today. There hasn't been another fatal accident on the Matterhorn since the death of Dolly Young. Since then, the section where she was struck on the Tomorrowland side of the mountain has become known as Dolly's Dip. While there have been a multitude of deaths at both Disney parks, the Matterhorn deaths have drawn a special interest for those interested in the dark parts of Disney's history. These deaths were so notable that they were recreated for the opening scene of the movie Escape from Tomorrow. Escape from Tomorrow is a 2013 American independent horror film written and directed by Randy Moore in his directorial debut. It tells the story of an unemployed father having increasingly bizarre experiences and disturbing visions on the last day of a family vacation at the Walt Disney World Resort. The film drew attention because Moore had shot most of it on location at both Walt Disney World and Disneyland without permission from the Walt Disney Company, owner and operator of both parks. Due to Disney's reputation of being protective of its intellectual property, the cast and crew used guerrilla filmmaking techniques to avoid attracting attention, such as keeping their scripts on their phones and shooting on handheld video cameras similar to those used by park visitors. After principal photography was complete, Moore was so determined to keep the project a secret from Disney that he edited it in South Korea. Sundance similarly declined to discuss the film in detail before it was shown. It's been called the ultimate guerrilla film. Rather than suppressing the film as more claimed would happen, Disney chose to ignore it. The film's title tells us a lot. The film's main character, Jim, is a husband and father who's severely displeased with his life and wants to escape this life he's created for himself. He wants to alter his life to lead to a more agreeable future. The film's title also suggests a kind of childlike mentality, the idea of living completely in the present embracing the moment and not worrying at all about the future or any consequences it might bring. This phenomenon is known as the puer eternus complex. A puer eternus is a person who can't quite grow up. In modern American literature, we think of it as the Peter Pan syndrome, which is a form of this archetype. The puer eternus understands that adult life calls, but it's just too much to ask. 
It's not just about being eternally youthful. It's about the fear of entrapment, rules, and all the commitments often found in a meaningful adult life. The puer typically leads a provisional life due to the fear of being caught in a situation from which it might not be able to escape. Their lot is seldom what they really want, and one day they'll do something about it, but just not yet. Plans for the future slip away in fantasies of what will be, what could be, while no decisive action is taken to change. They covet independence and freedom, chafe at boundaries and limits, and tend to find any restriction intolerable. Throughout the movie, Jim continually tries to escape from tomorrow. The film starts with a scene shot on a roller coaster. As the plot unfolds, it proves to be one big roller coaster ride, but for now, it seems like a perfectly normal, happy, fun environment. That is, of course, until a passenger on the coaster, just approaching Dolly's dip, is startlingly decapitated by a low-hanging archway. This opening establishes a number of things right away. One, not everything is sunshine and roses. Two, be prepared for the worst. And three, Disney World is a place where someone can easily lose their head, both figuratively and literally. Disney really was the perfect setting for a film of this kind. Having a family crumble and seeing a man who never got the perfect family he wanted break down in the Magic Kingdom, the happiest place on earth, seems only suiting. You can't be happy all the time, the temptress remarked at one point in the film. But yet Disney World sort of has that perfect family aesthetic that Sears catalog neatness. Even to this day, Disney gives off that 1950s American nuclear family ideal. But this film takes us on a black and white journey to the most colorful place on earth. Happiness like that, perfection like that, just isn't realistic. Jim found that out. Mark Maples and Regina Young found that out too. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for next week's story from the Mortuary. 